Hi, I'm Tara. Welcome to Scratching the Surface, where we talk all things real. I'm excited to share my chats with like-minded people on all of my passions. Please subscribe and feel free to connect with me on my Instagram at Life Behind the Rainbow or on my Facebook page at We Rainbow Oils. I would love to hear your feedback, love and light to you all. Hello, hello everybody. I have taken about two months off. Um, We were in the middle of my series on mental health and I have been chatting to lots of different friends that work in different sectors. Um, I have already discussed mental health in adults, in children, in teenagers. And now I'm here with Aaron Kelly, a hall tutor of University of Edinburgh. Yep, and the University uh, of Edinburgh, all the way in sunny Scotland. Yeah, Bonnie, Scotland, where I've just come back from, that's where I was, and that's why I haven't been here. I actually worked with Aaron in this role. He helped me to get the job back in Liverpool back in the day when we lived there, and I just know from working along with him in Liverpool Hope University that there is a lot, a lot, a lot of mental health issues and things that staff and students and everything need to work through and Aaron is going to talk all about his experience and uh, his daily job and I'm just so excited to catch up with him. So Aaron will you just please introduce yourself? Yeah thanks Tara it's really nice to be here with you today Uh, all the way from as I said Scotland. So yes I'm Aaron and I'm one of the uh, the residence life coordinators at the University of Edinburgh. And um, I'm also working as a counsellor as well, not not for the university, but for other organisations within Edinburgh. And um, I'm doing a lot of work within that field at this moment in time. Um, obviously, you know, the, the fallout from the, the pandemic, you know, I think has really... Uh, created a, a, a surge of, of mental health um, you know, issues within our community and uh, I'm working within a number of organizations just now to try and uh, address that I think and that's something that I'll speak a little bit more about later on as we kind of get, get into the podcast about my experience and stuff as well. Uh, so yeah that's a little bit about me and my, my kind of work at this moment in time. Yeah, no, that's all so interesting. I definitely want to know every, I want to know all, I want to know about every single little pocket of uh, of your life right now and all the work on mental health, especially. Um, that's kind of the topic I'm really, really interested in. I just think if there's any tips or if you're gaining any knowledge that you can share with the listeners, like, please, please send it our way. Um, so can we just go back to... You are working at the University of Edinburgh right now. Um, Can you just kind of outline your role there and what all that is that you do? Yeah, absolutely. So we're kind of like the the pastoral arm, if you like, of the university. Um, So essentially, you know, my my role within the university is I, I sort of work within a team of professionals who manage the sort of welfare of students 
who live predominantly in the halls of residence. And we've got around 10 and a half thousand, maybe closer to 11,000 uh, students living at present. And uh, our, our role essentially is helping our students uh, transition to university as they come from all over the world. I mean, Edinburgh is a multicultural and rich and diverse university that attracts students from all around the world. And when our residents join us, you know, they might be for the first time, uh, you know, entering not only a new country, but a new continent as well, with many coming from overseas as far as China, uh, Hong Kong, Australia. Uh, we've got a large uh, American population and Canadian population as well. So we really are a rich and diverse university. But our sort of main, well, one of our main kind of aims or our core functions as a department, if you like, is ensuring that when those students arrive, they feel part of something much bigger than just uh, you know, a housing complex. We're really trying to create community within our halls of residence. And we're really trying to provide people with what I like to refer to as meaningful interactions, providing those people, um, you know, a place where they can feel part of something much bigger and really settle in and make the most of their university experience. And I think that's incredibly important because a lot of the research uh, would suggest that people do much better academically when they feel part of something you know it's really important that we have social connections you know we're all social beings and we all strive for social connectedness and you know relatedness and so on and so forth and you know our, our role is incredibly important in in making that happen you know and there's mm-hmm. various ways that we can do that through running events um and also building up relationships with people and i'll say a little bit more about relationships kind of as we go through the podcast but for me that's first and foremost you know what we're all about you know my team of resident assistants who are students themselves they live here in the halls of residence and it's their role to be what i like to refer to as the eyes and ears of the accommodation you know so they're going out they're they're building up meaningful connections with people and they're developing trust you know with their residents and that way i think what that does is it encourages people to approach them when they're struggling because let's face it coming to university you know you and i have been there ourselves many moons ago when we came over from northern ireland to liverpool you know it's it's a very difficult experience you know and that's been somewhat exasperated by by, by covid and by you know the current you know economic and global kind of um you know uh, you know shifts and never more so has it been so important to help those people transition to university and make them feel part of their part of their community and when people are struggling the idea is that if you develop those relationships and you develop that trust and intimacy with the residents who are here when they're struggling they're more inclined to reach out for help and support and then that's where our team come in and then of course that means that they're actually going to be more able to to study to actually get be in their their degree because I can imagine you know you were saying there's students coming the whole way from China America even as you say we've come over from like the same area the same we have the same language we have the same you know morals and values and everything like that and it was still really difficult but we were so lucky I suppose both of us are actually quite social beings and we were like oh yeah I'll get yeah. involved in this that and the other and I mean Arne and I have actually we met because we were at the same uni and we were just like 
up for nights out, up for the parties, up for trying new things, whatever. But not everybody's like that. So there's going to be a lot of people listening that they are maybe that shy person or they're they're not just going to, oh, yeah, whatever, I don't mind. I'll try this. I'll go there. Is that the people that you find that you're having to really nurture the most? Or sometimes are you nearly a bit shocked? It's the people that they come really raring to go and then university life completely shocks them because they're away from their family and their mummies cooking their dinner and stuff yeah no it's a bit of both I you know there's 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 two different types of student there you know I think those feelings of kind of uh you know feeling quite ambivalent and feeling a bit anxious about moving away to university you know uh that's all incredibly normal you know and uh you know those feelings need to be kind of validated and you know we need to give our students permission to to feel those things actually you know because it is a very difficult time it's probably one of the biggest transitions that they'll ever sort of you know undertake in their adolescent uh you know life and um you know what what advice I would sort of like to kind of maybe pass on to those students who are thinking of coming to university in September you know as we're kind of slowly exiting the kind of you know I say I say pandemic you know very very slowly and very sort of cautiously we seem to be coming out the other side of it um you know is to you know is, is, is to is to allow yourself to sort of feel those ambivalent and anxious um, you know, emotions. Uh, I think, you know, when, when you arrive, you know, I think it's important to do what you're most comfortable with, you know, uh, but to also challenge yourself as well, you know. Um, I, th- I think that's really important because, as I said, it is important that you, uh, you know, take the time to, you know, meet people and, and get involved in something, whether it's a club or society or whether it's something more local in your halls of residence, you know, it's, it's kind of about doing what you're most comfortable with um and at the same time setting yourself small challenges to kind of stray outside your comfort zone as well and you know using that as an opportunity to to meet new people and to to meet new new friends um and those feelings of homesickness and you know culture shock and things like that i mean that's all incredibly normal as well and uh, again i would in- i would encourage folk to again give yourself permission to you know feel those things and to and to validate those those feelings but equally as well you know reach out and you know communicate those as well to to folk who are there to listen and who are there to support uh within within the halls of of residents because that's one of the things i believe universities do so well is support is support not just residents but also support students in their accommodation and you know in in the wider university arena as well you know there's lots of support uh, available at universities but sometimes it's quite difficult particularly when you arrive to, to access that you have to learn how to access that and you have to sort of learn how to negotiate that support and again that can be learned from you know more experienced peers from you know uh, other students on the course from maybe your personal tutor from maybe the folk who there support you in the residence halls as well but I it, it can be difficult but I think you know that that's sometimes you know part of the journey as well to a certain degree Aaron, do you know, does every single university then have similar support mechanisms or would you say that yours is like kind of second to none and a lot of other unis could really model off your, what your, your kind of work or 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, residents' life, you know, it, it really is kind of, you know, growing arms and legs across the UK at this moment in time. We're certainly one of the biggest teams uh, operating just now. And, um, you know, we have around, I believe, I mean, it's 11 or 12 full-time professionals within our team. Uh, we have a team of 25 or so living wardens as well who are full-time, uh, part-time students staff at the university that manage a team of around 240 RAs and that is resident assistants. So, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the students who are studying themselves and who are on the ground, as I said, running the events, building up their relationships, etc. So we, we are quite a, quite a big team, but as far as I'm aware, other universities absolutely have been engaged in similar programs and similar initiatives for a long time now. And, you know, other, you know, many universities now um, are pretty well established within the residence life departments and, um, you know, I think smaller universities um, uh, are, are now starting to jump on the kind of residence life bandwagon as well and starting to like look at universities like ourselves and, you know, other, you know, other established programs like Sheffield and uh, Roehampton and Bristol and, you know, things like that and kind of copying models and things and adapting it to suit their needs and so on. I'm just going back to something you had said just before. It really is such a transitional period. And I feel like when you're in school, you're just so excited to be free, to be an adult, to, oh my goodness, I'm going to move away. And until you actually get there, you don't really actually think, oh my goodness, like this is terrifying. I remember the first couple of nights, like being like, what am I actually doing? What am I doing? Why did I not just go to Belfast where loads of my friends from school were going? I would feel a bit more secure. I'd be an hour up the road. But actually what that is, is we're actually transforming from really a child, actually a child still living at home, still being fed and nurtured by your family, the way that you grew up with all those, whether they're negative or positive, um, family traits and the learned behaviors at home to then go out to the big world on your own like you're actually becoming an adult and I do feel like young adults don't get enough slack nearly for that is actually what's going on it is a really big transitional period they're not they're not fully an adult yet I feel like young people it does go on to nearly what 21 22 I mean, for me, I know that it wasn't until I went a bit traveling and did a bit of that yeah, for a couple yeah. of years. I feel like I wasn't an adult until I was 24. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. You know, I think that's that's how it goes, you know. Uh, I mean, our, you know, our, well, our brains are always growing and developing and we're always creating new neural pathways, you know. But that that kind of pruning, you know, that, you know, you know as you sort of suggested there, you know, uh, we are the most intricate parts of our, you know, brain aren't fully formed until we're in our early 20s, you know, where we can reason and, you know, and where we can fully kind of, you know, learn and analyze complex problems as well. You know, that really doesn't kind of, you know, come into full kind of, you know, maturation until we're around, you know, as you said, 22, 23. Well, it's very much dependent on people, but again, in our early 20s, you know, and that's why it's 16 and 17. You know, these decisions um, are, 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 are huge and how you negotiate this, you know, can be very, very complex because we, we just haven't fully developed the parts of our brain 
that we actually need to have fully developed to negotiate this difficult terrain. So it really is very, very interesting from a psychological perspective as well. So, yeah, then let's go back as well. Last year, what happened then for those students arriving literally first year? Like, I obviously wasn't anywhere near university. I don't have a clue. I mean, I wasn't even seeing my brothers that are at uni uh, because I was sick and everything. But what was it like? I mean, obviously, it was incredibly difficult, you know, um, it wasn't without its challenges. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the pandemic did have a significant impact um, on our student populations, uh, not just here in Edinburgh, but I would you know, arguably across all of the UK, across the globe, actually, probably, you know, given the fallout of, of, of kind of what happened. And um, I think what it kind of did was, you know, student life, I believe, is incredibly stressful already you know for some of the reasons we've kind of outlined and you know maybe touched upon um but i, I kind of got the impression that um you know students were starting to feel you know other emotions you know i think there was a real uh sense of just being you know totally overwhelmed you know having to just adjust to new sort of, you know, uh, study routines, you know, working environments, teaching methods and routines that have been usually, you know, face-to-face shifted online kind of almost overnight. And, you know, that really impacts the way in which people learn, you know, and I, I, I think that's um, an incredibly important point to, to make. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think maybe, a little bit about that kind of from a you know a psychological you know, perspective i think you know how we interact with people in the real world if you like is very different to how we interact with people in an online world you know when we have a face to face experience you know with with somebody you know our brain is very much aware of that and it's releasing a whole different set of you know neurotransmitters and and, and you know chemicals uh, particularly in our kind of reward pathway that kind of tells our brain that this is an important experience, you know, you're, you know, this is, this is a novel experience, you know, um, that doesn't, that, that doesn't so much happen in an online kind of arena because, uh, you know, it's of course very, very different and it's, it's quite challenging. And, and for me, there's something around that from some of the research that I'm reading at the minute is the kind of these kind of novel experiences that we have are very much linked to kind of learning and memory and students. And well, I say students, I mean, people in general, you know, we're more likely to learn in situations where there is a certain amount of novelty. And that's why, you know, getting kids back into the classroom has never been so important. That's why getting students back into face-to-face teaching has never been so important because it does help enhance, you know, that that learning process and that cognition as well. So I think that's um, quite um, an important point to, to make around that. But also kind of moving away from that, I think students got a bit of a bad kind of you know, wrapped in it kind of in the media and so on and so forth for, you know, flouting the rules and so on and so forth and having these big parties and whatnot. And actually, well, you know, whilst that was the case in some respects, it wasn't the norm, you know. And in fact, I would like to say that many of the students in our accommodation actually, you know, carried out their, their moral and their civic duty, um, you know, with, with, uh, with you know, great applause because actually... 
uh, you know, that, that, that really was the reality of it. And certainly there was a deep sort of sense of frustration among students, you know, uh, you, know you know, because of other students breaking rules and flouting the rules and so on and so forth. And I think there was sometimes a bit of a frustration with how the university, you know, might have been handling it. And uh, in, in, in certain aspects as well, and that's just not here in Edinburgh. I think that was sort of across the UK as well, you know, with campus lockdowns and mandatory isolations and things like that. And I think that really sort of, um, you know, uh, led students to believe that they were a bit hard done by and a bit disappointed with the reality of sort of university life. You know, it wasn't what they imagined it to be and I don't think it really met all of their expectations and I kind of thought about my experience you know when I, when I moved away and I'm, Karen, I'm sure you're kind of much the same because you know when we moved away you know freshers week and being involved in all those activities and you know meeting all your pals and getting out and about in the town and you know doing all that stuff you know that that wasn't allowed to that you know that that well that that could happen but under a very very restricted sort of uh you know set of uh you know rules and regulations certainly wasn't our experience and i just don't know how i mean i, I think you know they, they demonstrated a huge amount of resilience actually and integrity uh, at, at the same time because looking back on it now i don't think i could have done it well see when you're just talking about that like i'm literally shaking my head here because i'm like whoa trying to even imagine me at 18 years old going over to a brand new city and not being able to go and explore and find your little favorite bars and your favorite little uh deals and stuff you remember we always went to like Sava for the one pound shots and stuff like that <laughs> and you start your night like they they weren't able to go into bars to figure out oh yeah this is fun to start with and oh, I'll, I'll love to start my night here and move on to here. They're probably only going to get to know that now this year coming. But so what, is it going to be different for them then this year? Like, what do we think? It just sounds awful. I think I probably would have went home. I, I don't think I would have stuck it out. Well done to them students. Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly challenging. This year will, I think, be different. As I said, we're coming out you know, the other side of it. I say that quite cautiously because we we just don't know. So I do say it with slight trepidation, but I think we are coming out the other it's side. Up to the of government. Pardon? It's up to the government. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we just follow suit, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have to be flexible. We have to keep an open mind because usually these decisions are being made um, as you have correctly identified at governmental level, and we're essentially just rolling them out as we kind of get them, you know, so we're not essentially responsible for the rules and regulations. And I think students are very much aware of that. You know, it's, it's not us imposing these restrictions, you know, but, but we do have a duty to kind of, you know, ensure that they're being adhered to. And as I said, adherence to the restrictions has been fairly good across the board, actually. This year, the university is moving to a hybrid model, which essentially is a kind of, you know, jargonistic term for, you know, online and in person, you know, and I think they've kind of recognised the importance in that. I touched on that a little bit earlier on with the importance of getting folk back into the classroom. But I think as we move into this this year, it'll be a blended kind of approach of, uh, you know, being in the classroom for those kind of hands-on learning experiences and some, and some stuff, you know, online as well. Do you know what I'm just thinking as well? I bet you for some students that actually, you know, the way it's been was maybe actually 
in their favor you know some students they would probably prefer that I definitely I loved getting into the lecture theater nearly seeing like the eye contact or like the enthusiasm on the lecturer's face I suppose about certain subjects and being able to stop them and go well explain that a bit more I love that but I'm thinking that there was probably half of the students or at least a big majority of students are like, yes, great. Like it's all online, you know, some students like never came to class in my day anyway, that kind of thing. So you've probably seen some of that too. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. Um, and uh, as, as I said, I think, I think different students have, have really approached it, you know, differently. Um, but, you know, on, on the whole, I've, I've been really, uh, you know, pleased with, uh, with how our students have, handled themselves and conducted themselves on the most part, you know, throughout the, you know, throughout the pandemic. You're like um, a proud dad. In some respects I am, I guess, you know, in some <laughs> respects I am. Uh, but uh, as they were, we're very much kind of looking forward to the, the new year and welcoming uh, a new cohort of, of students into our accommodation. Um, and we're hoping that their experience in September um, will be, uh, you know, more positive I think than or perhaps you know uh, this cohorts were. I really want to know then what all goes on for your students the community what are you doing to bring that community together what fun things is going to be happening what fun things did used to happen that we can be hopefully moving back to? Yeah I mean I think one of the things that um you know what we do really well is we we run a really rich kind of uh program of events within the university halls of residences and as so that's really really important you know we do, you know it's it's one of our core kind of functions of residence life is to you know is to bring people together you know uh create those meaningful opportunities so people can meet people you know people uh I, as I've said, you know, we, we are social creatures and we do all strive for that kind of intimacy and that those kind of social connections. So, you know, uh, you know, some of the things that we've done really well over the lockdown period is, uh, you know, various online, you know, quizzes, um, competitions. Um, we've had huge big kind of Zoom, um, you know, meetings as well, again, with some sort of structure to them also. And, um, you know, one of the things that I actually did over the lockdown was a, uh, an online cook-along where we were, um, well, we're, we're me uh, and my, my team here, uh, we, we, we live streamed on Facebook uh, every Friday night and um, we, we encouraged folk to cook along uh, a recipe in which we shared with them in advance. Um, and uh, I mean, that, that really was, that was great. You know, we, we had something like 20,000 views, um, you know, across the 12 week kind of, you know, program and uh, people from all over the world actually were, were, I mean, that's, that's one of the great things about Facebook, right? Is people could watch from all over the world and they could watch from the comfort of their own bedroom when they were in isolation themselves. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that a lot of folk did actively cook along but a lot of folk did engage with it and certainly I think got a lot from it and enjoyed watching it, um, which uh, again was, was really positive. And, you know, I think just being able to, to do something and to, to offer them something that brought them, even if it was 30 minutes of joy on a Friday night, you know, that was, that was fun. Was it quite interactive? Did you find that some students and some people were co like commenting back in and stuff or were, was it more like they were maybe having a glass of wine and watching you or what? 
I think I think it was a bit of both, to be honest. You know, again, I think, uh, I, yeah, I, I, you know, it was great to see, you know, uh, so much engagement in like the comments below and stuff as well. People were asking me questions and people were like, you know, cheering me on. And, you know, uh, yeah, people were having a drink and people were having a bit of crack while watching it. Um, and, you know, that, you know, that was really great, you know, too. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily something to be an, over, an overly serious thing, you know, uh, but there was something quite nice about being able to, you know, blend kind of my uh, passion for cooking in with with work you know and you know we talk a lot about self-care and things like that and you know cooking for me is a huge uh you know uh thing that i do I, for for my own probably yeah probably like, really yeah mm-hmm, oh i remember anytime i would be around at Arn. so Arn was in the big boys house at uni and then we were in the girls house and we would go around there just like for drinks or sometimes yeah for dinner and just like maybe we'd go on out for nights out and stuff and stuff from there and Arn was always number one chef so that's brilliant i'm hoping that you're going to actually keep this going yeah well uh they're they're actually all on my uh facebook and uh funny it, it just came back there a few uh, what was it, a few months ago because obviously Facebook show you your memories from years mm-hmm. gone by some of which still go back to our Liverpool days Tara um, <laughs> which seems like a lifetime ago and uh, you know, some of them photos should never see the light of day but uh, you know uh, yeah they're, they're on there and they, they did come back you know they were on my sort of memory feed like a few months ago and uh, I rewatched one of them back because uh, they weren't that long, they were like 20, 25 minutes. You know, the idea was that you, know, you, you could put something together that was quite quick and tasty, you know, in like 20 minutes or less. And um, Brilliant. I think one of my favorite ones that we've done, you know, I, I, I kind of took requests like week on week as well. So it's like, so, you know, comment below what you want me to cook next week and so on. And then um, I, I, for, the, for the last week, I really wanted to kind of impress because up until that point, we've done like various pasta things, and and you know I think we've done like lamb burgers one week as well. And uh, funny that, that the the lamb burgers, and um, that's when actually all the lads from our from my house at university they cooked along from all over the world. So we had folk in Australia, you know, James in Canada, Lee was in Hong Kong. They all cooked along. No, oh, I was, was so I, so I was sick at the time. I didn't even know that this was going on. I literally was not really on Facebook, but definitely, if it's going to be starting again, I'll be, I'll be joining, and I'll have my glass of red wine. And I'll be cooking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're we're in talks with the producer for season two in September, so I will, uh, I will let you know uh, if it's um, going to be recommissioned. I have a question. <laughs> I have a question. You, uh talked about you did little online competitions and everything what were some of the most amazing prizes that the students could win well actually a lot of the stuff I mean we weren't too inventive with our prizes we did well we did like hampers and things like that but most of the prizes were like Amazon vouchers and like things like that I mean because then they could spend on whatever they wanted yeah that's all they want yeah great that's brilliant it was really really good actually Yeah, yeah it was it was a lot of fun um so uh so yeah i'd say we 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 may bring it back um in september you also are completing your 
learning in psychology and counseling. Um, so I wonder there, you know, is there any coping mechanisms? Is there anything that you can be telling students, okay, when you're going to university now this September, you know, with your experience of pastoral care and with your experience on a clinical level, just give us all the tips. That's what we want. All the tips. Okay, so let me see. I think, you know, what's important uh, kind of first and foremost is that, you know, if you're experiencing, you know, any of those feelings, you know, uh, you know, being feelings of being overwhelmed or, or stressed uh, about coming to university in September or perhaps a bit uncertain, um, you know, I, I think, you know, that, as I said, that, that is totally okay. You know, there is no normal response to, you know, any of these emotions. And, uh, you know, I think having difficult thoughts about the impact of, you know, the, you know, the virus and, you know, as we kind of come out of lockdown and kind of reorientate ourselves to society, you know, it, it is understandable after having, you know, lived through it for, for so long. So I think that's kind of first and foremost, that there is really no normal response. Um, and, you know, also that, you know, this, this idea of kind of, you know, feelings and emotions can, can change kind of, you know, day to day. And, you know, how you feel right now, you know, it, it might be due to the things that are perhaps out of your control. And um, you, know, you might even feel worse before you feel that things are improving. But actually, you know, over time, you know, uh, things things do, uh, you know, tend to tend to get better, you know. And of course, you know, these these feelings will particularly last for forever. And yes, you know, of course, it might feel hard right now. And we want to, you know, uh, you know, validate those emotions and feelings and give you permission to feel those things. But, you know, this is a really unprecedented situation. And, you know, this isn't always how life will always be. So, you know, this this situation, you know, I'm quite hopeful and quite optimistic that actually uh, September, uh, you know, or by the time September comes, you know, the universities, um, you know, will be much more prepared, I think, to, uh, to help and support our residents. And that's not to say that, you know, the universities have done a bad job supporting supporting and you know, looking after students this year I mean far from it I think the teams do a fantastic job across the university but it really was almost you know um, overnight uh, you know when when this virus took took hold and we were all forced into lockdown and I think everyone sort of panicked a little bit and it took people quite rightly so just a bit of time to get in place the policies and the procedures and the support structures and so on so there's an element of I think preparedness um that, that i think the universities will will have in in oh, september yeah. yeah it was just the one certain last year mm-hmm. no I, I, absolutely it, it was um but I, I i think you know some some other things that you know might be quite useful is i'm i'm a huge advocate for you know talking to people that you can trust you know and you know tell them about how you're feeling you know and it doesn't necessarily need to be you know, professional support staff. It can be friends from university. Uh, it can be people, uh, you know, from home that you're still in touch with. You know, it could be members of your family. It could even be your GP, you know. And remember, if you can't necessarily meet people in person, you know, there, there's always online, you know, and I know it's not the same. Uh, and I, I fully understand that. But, you know, there, there is something important about, you know, staying in touch with people and, and having those meaningful kind of, 
you know, social connections. And, you know, if you are at any point, you know, struggling with your academic work or your perhaps finances or your mental health, you know, it is okay to, to ask for, for help. And, you know, a good place to always start with that, you know, is, is your GP or anybody from your university pastoral team, you know, uh, academics, you know, uh, you know, part of their role now is to, uh, you know, keep an eye out on student well-being. You know, no, of course, you know they, they aren't trained in any specialist interventions, um, but they they do have a, a pastoral element to their role as well, and um, you know it's important that uh, you know you you can feel confident and you recognise that they can be a really good support network too. Um, but finally, I think the last thing I'll sort of say on that is that, you know, it's really important just to be kind to yourself and to have that kind of, you know, uh, self-compassion because, you know, if you're struggling at the moment, I mean, that's incredibly normal. Um, you know, I think, you know, many of us are, are struggling or, or have struggled over the last year or so. And it is important just to be gentle and kind to yourself. You know, there's no right or wrong way to, to feel about the, you know, the virus and how it might be affecting your life and uh you know i think just just try to remind yourself of this and you know try to make time to be kind for yourself you know whether that's through self-care whether it's through reflective journaling whether it's just hanging out with your friends you know find out what works for you and, and practice it religiously just um for any young people maybe that are listening and they don't know what that means what is your kind of definition of pastoral pastoral care? Yeah, it's a uh, it's it's quite uh, that's a that's a good question. I mean, it's one of them one of them words that actually you know we we you kind of just sort of you know use but don't necessarily think about the the kind of meaning. But for me, it's something about um, it's it's about kind of providing somebody with I guess um, emotional. Uh, or perhaps social or maybe even spiritual support, you know, and it's not necessarily that you have to be trained uh, to, to, to deliver any sort of pastoral care. Um, but it's just, I think it's, it's, there's something about just being genuinely concerned um, about, about somebody's well-being and being able to create a space um, for, for people where they feel comfortable, uh, you know, talking about things that might be challenging for them and as a, as a helper or somebody that's facilitating pastoral care uh it's a case of just being able to to listen attentively and not to fix or not to try and heal or make things better but 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 just be a support uh or just be, just be a supportive listener i think is kind of my sort of interpretation of it Wow, wouldn't everybody just love to have Aaron Kelly as their support worker in their university? <laughs> um, okay, so can we move on, Aaron? Just um, you're actually outside of that work and outside of the, the university, you're doing a lot of little projects and learning. And just tell us a bit about that and any any tips or anything that you've learned from that then. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I say, I really am passionate about my work with the university, um, and and I'm, I'm I'm working in the student communities, but um, I'm also uh, just about to qualify as a, a counselor, and uh, 
Woo! So I'll uh, thank you. So a lot of the kind of work that I do outside of that, um, uh, well, I, I work with other kind of client groups. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that I kind of wanted to maybe just speak about um, today was, you know, this idea of kind of, uh, you know, re-entry anxiety, you know? And I think as the kind of, uh, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about what that is in, in kind of, you know, due course, but this is something that's kind of, you know, uh, you know, I guess sweeping across the nation, you know, so to speak. Um, and I think it's to do with, you know, as lockdown restrictions kind of begin to ease across, you know, the UK for the most part, I think it's entirely normal to experience a like a, a new source of stress or uh, anxiety and as, as counselors and uh you know as i guess a trainee psychologist as well you know we all love buzzwords and we all love uh you know uh labeling things and i think uh what what we're labeling this as is uh you know re re-entry anxiety but there's that that uncertainty about you know going back to work essentially you know going back to uh or, or reorientating yourself um you know back into life as it was kind of you know pre-covid and i think at the beginning of you know the pandemic I think many of us experienced a kind of similar anxiety when we were told to sort of, you know, stay at home, work from home, you know, protect the NHS and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, this this took us a while to adjust to um, uh, quite, quite understandably. And I think it's entirely reasonable to suggest that some may experience similar feelings as we prepare to go the other way, essentially. Um, so I think, you know, last March, you know, when the, when the, the, the pandemic you know, was really kind of, you know, taken off, you know, we were plunged into you know, a UK wide lockdown, you know, kind of overnight. And, you know, that, that led to us spending, you know, loads of time at home, you know, for, for the most part. And, you know, for, for the most part, and, you know, for many of us, that, that would have been a safe space, you know, for, for, for most of us. Okay. And uh, I think the thought of, leaving that place you know where we're where we're safe and you know where we're you know comforted it it's only quite natural that we then start to you know reawaken these feelings of uneasiness and and doubt and i think what that kind of does in a kind of like psychological or from a kind of psychological perspective it it kind of it kind of you know urges us to sort of question things you know this kind of you know what what if you know type you know, questions and, and they're they're often kind of the you know the most troubling you know what if something bad happens to me or you know what if I go back to work and I, I don't remember how to do certain things or you know what if I go back to work and you know perhaps make a fool of myself you know all these things can further promote our discomfort and our anxiety and I think what I want to kind of just say about that is you know if, if you are experiencing things like that again you know this is entirely normal and it's important to kind of, you know, notice them and to, I think, just respond to them in, in a kind of, you know, healthy way. And, uh, you know, I think some of the things that you might want to ask yourself um, as a kind of, you know, result of that, it's, it's kind of like, well, what, what actions are, you know, these feelings encouraging me to take? Or, you know, what, what are these, you know, 
questions or actions kind of you know making me aware of what what kind of emotions you know are these questions kind of you know bringing up for me and i think you know if, if we can really try and understand our emotions and you know really get into contact with them you know we, we can really get to know ourselves in a, a kind of much deeper way and i think that can almost help us take care of ourselves kind of more holistically in a kind of um whole of a person like type way and that encourages us to act in ways that are kind of more beneficial so i think you know after a year of bacon banana bread and watching tiger king and taking part in so many different zoom meetings you know uh i think uh as we prepare ourselves to live through kind of the next installment of the kind of you know covid drama if you like um I think what I would like to encourage people to do is to really like, you know, I think avoid the things that you just simply endured rather than enjoyed before lockdown. You know, I think making cuts in areas of your life that you only did because you felt like you had to, you know, they're the things that perhaps are not giving us the most satisfaction and they're not optimal for our well-being. And for me, I've been doing that exercise, and it's such a relief to stop doing those things that I just hated, but I felt like I had to do, you know, whether it was for somebody else or, you know, whether it was for, you know, it, it, it just wasn't for me. And I think, you know, just having to rethink about how you want to make the most of your time and you know, give yourself permission to stop doing those things that don't bring you any joy, I think is just, it's just so important. And I literally have shivers when you're saying that because you're ta- you're giving it a label of re-entry and I would never have I didn't know that and I just thought I was a weirdo because back obviously I got sick literally in the March whenever the pandemic happened so for me lockdown the whole time was about my sickness I literally had my last round of chemo in the February and then obviously we started coming back out of lockdowns what about April May and because I hadn't really seen people I hadn't I actually avoided going to the shops I I didn't like like being out and about in my even my hometown because I didn't want Mm -hmm. people like seeing me without any hair and with my wee cancer hat and Mm -hmm. with and asking or giving me the little sad eyes and like oh wonder how she is whatever I just I couldn't cope like I just started crying anytime that I would see people I knew or whatever so I had massive anxiety massive I was Mm -hmm. even just going out with friends and to places that I've went my whole teenage years like bars and places and I actually was like having panic attacks before we were going Mm -hmm. and I was like crying to Stephen being like I can't go I don't want to go and actually it was only by going inside and like you say doing some of your own work setting my own boundaries and saying okay look I'll go to this but I'm not going to that no I don't even want to go there or I don't even really like doing that so I'm not doing it like I just feel so empowered now that I've actually allowed myself to do it so if you take anything away from this conversation please do listen to what Aaron was saying there that is that literally has like resonated with me so so much thank you so much no that's that's I mean that's that's great and thank you for sharing a bit of your story as well 
one of the things that particularly kind of you know worry me um, as we kind of emerge um, from our kind of COVID slumber, if you like, it's um, you know this this idea of you know you know the, the, the people who are, are the, the kids who are at school now, you know I know you work with um, you know school children and sometimes in in your work and so on and so forth, and you know this this oppressive labeling you know the COVID generation as what it's being referred to as I just think there's nothing worse for you know well there must be nothing worse for your mental health than being labeled as part of the you know the COVID generation and I I think and something I would like to really maybe use this platform to uh, articulate out is I think it's really really important not to believe the extremely high rates of mental disorders routinely reported by the media. You know, all this stuff that one in four of us have a mental health problem and so on and so forth. You know, the the evidence that is compelling the journalists to report these figures uh, is, 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 is not precise and it's not clinically supported. And you know these surveys are often carried out by journalists, not trained clinicians, who lack that kind of clinical expertise to assess whether or not the symptoms that are being reported actually cause significant levels of clinical distress and therefore a mental illness. And I think that's just incredibly important to articulate. We need to read behind uh, the 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 reports being articulated by the media because actually they can be very frightening for folk and it can be really quite quite scary and I think the 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 COVID pandemic you know has affected everybody at some level I would I would argue um, but it is important to challenge this idea that we're facing a wave of or a tsunami as I think I read about it the other day of of mental health that's going to be sweeping the UK and. Actually, you know, if you if you dive into like you know the research um a little bit further, and I don't claim to be an expert, but you know, mental health rates have been rising here in the UK uh for a long time prior to the pandemic, you know, what seems to be forever. And yes, the pandemic has had an impact, but we don't actually fully know to what extent it has just yet, because there, you know, all the research isn't in yet. You know, the 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 evidence is still being gathered. So we we simply we simply don't know. Um, and, and people's feelings uh, right now haven't settled yet, so we can't really yes. get that data for the next probably five years. Absolutely, it's 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 ongoing research that will provide us with the uh, with the information that will lead us to fully evidence whether or not you know uh you know well the, the full extent as to what impact the COVID pandemic will have on our, our mental health and I'm you know I'm very positive and I know you are too you know and we're we're, we're very kind of you know humanistic and actually I think as a, a population actually you know we're incredibly resilient okay and I think it's really patronizing to assume that large numbers of the population will fail to cope things like our students you know things like our our kids at school our NHS workers and so on and so forth and um you know I I, I think actually uh you know what, what I kind of want to say you know and I don't want to disregard anyone's kind of suffering because again I think this is quite a difficult kind of position to to take 
when actually there is so much kind of media saying that we're going to face a mental health epidemic and all the rest of it. But but actually, I I, I think, you know, the, the jury's still out and we just don't know. And actually, there's lots of, you know, research, uh, you know, to suggest that, that actually as a nation, you know, we're, we're, we're doing okay. You know, the overall message, just to kind of bring it all together, is... Um, that you know things have been tough for children and young people i think the most but kind of you know by and large large numbers of us have been relatively unaffected and i think um you know a few of us have struggled uh, a bit and you know i think a small percentage of us have needed extra uh you know psychiatric help and support so yeah i mean i think yeah i'm i'm quite positive and you know i believe that actually as i said we're quite a resilient bunch yeah no that's actually so amazing to hear your I suppose like you're opposing almost what we are here and constantly in the media and it's like really positive like you know i hope that everybody gets from that like a really positive message that even there with my own story, like I was like, oh my goodness, now do I have anxiety? Now do I have depression? Like, uh, but no, I was just going through a really freaking hard time and that's yeah. okay. I'm allowed to have those feelings, those emotions. I need to process them and then it's done. It's gone. I'm actually now a very happy, positive, not anxious person most of the time. But of course, whenever stressful things come up, I am anxious again. And that's just normal life. That's the riding the wave of life, really. So, so delighted to hear that from you, especially with your knowledge and your background and your learning and everything. So thanks for that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really great. And it's really interesting to hear that, you know, you were sort of questioning yourself as to, you know, do I have, you know, depression or, you know, I know you you said you, you mentioned earlier that you were having panic attacks and things. So maybe part of these questioning, you know, do I have a panic disorder? Because what, you know, what we do is we look for answers. You know, we go on to Dr. Google and we look through the things and, you know, we're constantly oh, checking. Like you go on to Google and you question, oh, I have bipolar, right? That's it. I've got all the symptoms. That's it. I now have bipolar. Like, it's awful. Like, this is not the best way for people to, to look after their well-being and their own mental health yeah i mean absolutely i think we really need to as a as a community get better at you know not using you know medical language you know i i, I think you know we have to be we, we we have to reserve such terminology like anxiety and distress and ptsd for those folks who really are uh, you know, uh, clinically and uh, you're clinically depressed and and have have anxiety. Um, because actually, what we're kind of doing is where um, you know, all mental health exists on a continuum. You know, we all feel anxious, we all feel sad. They're normal human uh, reactions, emotions to various you know uh, situations that we encounter. But we can't you know allow ourselves to you know. Uh, essentially you know use labels like anxiety and depression when actually all we're doing is feeling sad or all we're doing is feeling slightly anxious you know we have to reserve such um language for for you know those people whose suffering is is real and you know kind of you know need help as well because what's actually happening and it's actually quite interesting is you know and i kind of you know hear this in the sort of student communities as well um you know if we're you know uh 
conflating kind of normal human reactions with you know pathology if you like people then feel urged to use like these kind of you know um like you know qualifiers like and i heard you know you hear these things in the media like severe ptsd you know or uh you know severe depression extreme ptsd you know and actually depression is severe ptsd is extreme you know there's no need to essentially you know use those kind of qualifiers just to try and get get heard you know and i think uh you know that that that's a really kind of interesting uh point to make on the back of that have you got any uh daily tips what is your kind of go-to i know you're saying you like cooking and stuff um is that something you do then for your own mental health is there anything else that you would add yeah, I mean, I think for, for me, you know, uh, and I, again, I, I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, challenge anyone's beliefs, I think, around, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, medication and, and, you know, things like that. But I think as a society, we're becoming more obsessed with um you know, you know diagnosing people through a sort of medical model and you know i actually i actually read a report there seven and a half million adults are now taking antidepressants you know uh in is that in, in the, the uk, UK? <gasps> in the uk yeah yeah as opposed to one million people who are involved in you know psychological therapy and it's not because those people prefer medication over the therapy it's just that we li- we kind of live in an era where we're so quick to kind of, you know, over-diagnose and over-medicalize. And, you know, I actually was in at the GP. Now, this was a few years ago. It was back when mum was getting off mm-hmm. her feet, going into the wheelchair and stuff, and she was in a really bad place. And obviously, for our family and for me, like, as her daughter, the eldest daughter, like, the one that could try and help the most or like could try and understand mm-hmm. her feelings the most and whatever I just was in for a routine checkup thing in in the GP and she said she literally looked me in the eye and put like you know kind of her hands on the table and all and was like Tara how how is everything at home how are you feeling with about your mom mm-hmm. and I just started bawling and crying mm-hmm. but obviously it was like brand new it was like a really difficult we were all trying to process it we were trying to understand it and like as a family it was like oh my goodness is this really happening so of course yes I was like I would cry at the drop of a hat when I thought about it or when I talked about it at that time now I talk about it really openly and I hope that that helps others but um the first thing that the GP said was I think you need to go on something like she wanted to give me anti-anxiety pills antidepressant pills right there and then and I was like no, no, I don't need that. I don't want that. I'm not yeah. taking that in my body. And sure, yeah. thank God I didn't, because otherwise I wouldn't have actually processed it. And now I wouldn't be at the place I am now able to talk openly about it because it was all just be repressed. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really interesting. And actually, you know, you said that you were upset because of what was going on with your mum. And you just sort of questioned, you know, well, a, a, a pill or a kind of, you know, a, a pharmacological intervention will alter your brain chemistry. So what, you know, um, but that, that would kind of infer that actually the problem is then a biochemical imbalance in the brain in the first place, there's something wrong between your ears. You know, there's, there's something wrong in your brain that's actually making you feel this way. And actually when you do get into the evidence of that, 
not one single scrap of evidence exists that mental health, i.e. depression, anxiety, PTSD, whatever it might be, is actually anything to do with a biochemical imbalance. The problem is rooted in your social circumstances and in your family arena, you know, and you just question to yourself, well, how much is a pill you know, really going to fix that? When actually what we should be looking at is a kind of more sort of, you know, psychological or perhaps social intervention. And I think that is what is needed. I think that's that's kind of the, you know, the missing link um, in our prescribing culture. And I think that's a really kind of interesting area. Yeah, Aaron, we'll have to do something together in the future. Like literally you bring your innovative, futuristic counselling skills and I'll bring my, like, uh, I literally have the experience of it. You do not need this. Like we'll do it with all these holistic things. We'll use my oils. <laughs> I was showing Aaron just before we come on to the, I just started recording. Like I've got three little oils sat by my bed here and I was like, putting it on, making a wee blend in my hand and put it all behind my neck and ears and all just ready for to chat because I've been feeling a bit run down recently. Like, I don't need to take paracetamol or to take cough medicine or anything like that. Like, a few of them oils and sure listening to me, I'm literally buzzing. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, excellent. No, that's, I mean, that's, yeah, that's really, really great, you know. And uh, I'd be interested in trying out some of your uh, oils as well. I'll have to, I'll have to do that next time I'm home. Well, I think I'll actually be sending you a little package now for uh, to say thank you for this amazing chat. Like, I actually feel, Lauren, so I'm so glad. Like, you actually have come out and you've nearly contradicted maybe some of the things that I've been chatting with other people about. And it's just so good. It's so good to hear. So, Excellent. I mean, I'm really glad that you know, I can, I mean, I, I always am quite kind of controversial in my uh, in, my approach um but yeah i think there is something around changing the kind of you know uh you know narrative uh you know around you know our our, our kind of mental health uh you know discourse and um i think rather than label all emotional experiencing as uh you know um a biochemical imbalance or something wrong with with the person that kind of individualistic kind of you know medicalized approach we need to be kind of moving away and we need to be looking as a society um around kind of you know uh you know social interventions or educational interventions or perhaps other emotional interventions as well and family interventions it's yeah. a lot of time it's inherited or it's passed down it's learned behavior I really think the way forward is family intervention and just generally children learning from a very young age how to like cope better with yeah. everyday life absolutely and I think you know this all starts within you know the schools as well and I think this is kind of a and like an interesting point to make uh, as as well, because I'm sure a lot of your listeners out there will have you know kids in, in schools and so on and whatnot. And um, I I really do feel somewhat sorry for uh, you know teachers in in some regard, um, be, because they are encouraged subtly to you know take on this idea of like an early interventionist approach. You know, spotting 
disorders or spotting troubling signs or troubling patterns of behavior, you know, early on, you know, before they progress into something much worse. And, you know, that, that seems pretty reasonable, but actually, you know, I just think to what extent are teachers fully aware, you know, of, you know, what these problems, you know, truly are. And I think, you know, teachers, you know, far more readily today are ready to interpret children's behavior as perhaps an early sign of a mental health problem. Um, and not just the kind of uh, normal childhood experience that's perhaps slightly worrisome. You know, we're too quick. Are we very hasty? You know, we're, we're all hypervigilant. We're all incredibly anxious to early intervent or to, to provide an early interventionist approach and to, you know, be responsible and to, you know, to pass these on to the, you know, to, 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 to look for problems, to pass them on to the experts so readily without much prior knowledge. And that's not necessarily the teacher's fault. It's kind of the political agenda that's kind of been surpassed down onto them. And that's, that's constant referring and this constant kind of referral process. You know, is it any wonder that our services are so overwhelmed? Because actually, you know, what we're actually referring on to the professionals, you know, the, the psychiatrists and the psychologists and so on and so forth, you know, isn't early signs of mental health problems. It's just, you know, normal reactions to, you know, difficult circumstances and to, to troubling experiences that actually, you know, kids don't need medicalized, kids don't need specialist, you know, psychological, you know, CBT help or whatever it is, you know, they, you know, they, they need, uh, you know, just that kind of emotional support, that educational support, you know, that social support that actually I, I believe would, would do, would do them far much, you know, far much better. Uh, yeah, no, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. It's definitely, you know, I've challenged, I've nearly challenged myself and I feel like that's really challenging me because I used to work with kids and families and, you know, I would have been like, why are they not getting picked up by this and that service and everything? And it was like, we, they wouldn't meet the threshold. But I now understand that, you know, chatting to you there, I now get it because the services are literally overran. It's ridiculous. And yeah, it does just need to be at a more personal level like they just need yeah. they just need the time and space to develop like who they're supposed to be one of the final things i want to you know want to maybe kind of touch on is and it, it is it is very short it's like you know this idea that you know people people always ask me you know and it's a you know this question you know we could have spent an entire podcast talking about this but why are mental health rates you know on the rise you know and that's kind of what i get asked quite a lot and there's there is no straightforward answer we've kind of touched on it a little bit you know and i think there's loads of stuff we could talk about you know spoke a little bit about the pandemic you know we could touch on social media you know but but you know for for me you know i think as i i work with students in, you know in at the university and we are essentially preparing People. And we're trying to prepare people for the economy, for the labour market. They're going to leave university and then it's out into the big bad world of work. OK, but, you know, are we really giving them the skills and qualities, you know, they need to, to thrive? You know, because what they're going into, what they're entering into now, as opposed to what our parents were entering into 30, maybe 40 years ago. You know, back then it was easy to get a job. It was easy to get a house, you know. 
um, you know, your your uh, your life chances were far more enhanced. I think nowadays, you know, there's no jobs for life, flatlining wages, too many zero hour contracts, short term contracts, no secure work, limited housing. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And I I, I think that actually, you know, the answer isn't more mental health problems. It isn't more staff away days. It isn't increased access to GP or the services. This all actually comes in at governmental level, you know, and I think actually we're, we're being failed, you know, by a neoliberal capitalist government who are trying to you know, line their own pockets and actually by shifting the narrative onto us as individuals by, you know, trading more folk in, you know, mental health first aid at the workplace, giving more staff access to services and whatnot. There's something around that that kind of shifts the narrative from and shifts the scrutiny from them onto us. And it makes us think that actually the problem exists within us. The problem exists within us. You know, if we were more equipped or if we were more resilient or if we had better access to this, that and the other, then I'd be able to succeed and do much better in life. But the problem isn't within us. It's structural, it's political, and it's economical. And actually, I think that's the level at which there needs to be a serious rethink upon. Now, in terms of answers to that question, I don't begin to have the answers, but that's just my kind of, you know, interpretation of where we are as a society right now. Yes, Aaron. Aaron for president. Honestly, I would join your movement tomorrow. Like, this is the kind of shit that I want to go and say to, like, all the MPs around here. Like, this is not good enough. What the hell? but I just don't have the words like you do. Please, can we do this? Like, we need to start a movement here. <laughs> Bring on the revolution. <laughs> right, okay. Um, I think we have literally chatted the ears off everybody, so we'll leave it there. Thank you so, so, so much. Like, I have enjoyed this tremendously. I actually feel like I want to do... Uh, weekly podcast with you or something and just get into everything but um yeah thank you so much and you take care and hopefully see you soon thank you so much tara it's been a pleasure and uh hopefully we will catch up in person soon yeah bye, bye, bye.